0: Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice on this, your holy day, in the public means of grace, and we thank you for that means of grace that is the preaching, the teaching of your holy word. So now at this time, as we reopen your holy scriptures, to hear them expounded, we pray, Father, that they will run and be glorified that nothing will encumber, nothing will hinder the hearing of your word and truth, nothing will hinder their faithful preaching. We pray that by the convincing power of the Holy Spirit that this will be another day under the preaching of your word, where we will be more sanctified, that we will be more conformed to the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord, by the truth of your holy, infallible, inerrant word. These things we pray and ask by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for his sake. Amen. I invite you to take the word of God, and let's open up to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. God willing, next Sunday we will be back in John. But today, we are finishing this two-part series in Titus chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 6 through verse 8 Likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And so reads the infallible, the inerrant, authoritative and sufficient word of the living, eternal and holy God. In his timely and significant book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, Mark Dever gave one of the most unique definitions to church membership. It is unique because it is rare to understand church membership in this way, but what's most important about his definition is that it is biblical. Devor wrote this. He said, membership in a church is that church's corporate testimony to the individual member's salvation. Listen to that again. Membership in a church is that church's corporate testimony to the individual member's salvation. In other words, when someone joins a local church, the affirmation of the church body receiving that individual as a member is their collective endorsement of that person's professed salvation. Now, Dever goes on from here to expound this statement by saying, for a church to practice biblical church membership requires not perfection, but honesty. It calls not for bare decisions, but for real discipleship. It is made up not of individual experiences alone, but of corporate affirmations by those in covenant with God and with each other. So to sum it up, biblical church membership is the collective claim of individuals who have been authentically saved by the grace of God in Christ and are living together in the joy peace and holiness of that salvation therefore when the world looks into this organized body called the church what should they see do they only see a cold building inhabited with people who are no different than them is it a mere social club is that what they see no they should see a group of people whose lives demonstrate a change that can only be credited to God and His grace alone. How we treat our families, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and even our enemies, and certainly how we treat each other as fellow Christians, must prove to the watching world that there is a radical transformation of heart and life which has come to pass through the power of Jesus Christ. That is the essence of church membership. It is an internal testimony to one another that Christ has saved us, which works itself out into a life that visibly demonstrates godliness. Hence, a life devoted to God and His glory. Now, the reason I begin our study with this biblical snapshot of church membership is because of where we're returning in this brief exposition of Titus chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 and verses 6 through 8. From the larger context of Paul's epistle to Titus, this section of chapter 2 actually unpacks the kind of character and conduct that should be expected in church members, specifically the members of a local church, no matter their age or gender, should exhibit the graces of a godly life. This no different than the godly character expected in the leaders of the church, which Paul set forth in the first chapter of Titus. The professing believers who make up the church body must also meet a standard for godly character as well. Last week we began to consider this standard for the men of the church. And our first subject of this study was what Paul classified as the older men. The older men. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul instructed Titus to teach the older men of the church to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. By each of these qualities, we understood that in in older Christian men, that is, men 50 and above, in older Christian men, the marks of godliness should be distinguished by a well-ordered life, graveness of demeanor, A conquering self-control, living by faith, not by sight, God-centered, self-denying love in a patience that perseveres under the hardest trials. When an older Christian man is growing as he should by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, these aforementioned graces of Titus 2 and verse 2 should be the expected fruit. Now, for our study this morning... We turn our attention to Titus chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, where there is a threefold focus for two other men in the church. First, there's the general exhortation to young Christian men. Second, there's the specific exhortation to a young Christian minister. And then finally, there's the sanctifying effect of a godly example. To begin with, then, let's notice first the general exhortation to young Christian men. Looking at Titus 2 and verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. If you only had one word of counsel and admonition to give to younger Christian men, what would it be? Only one word. What would it be? If you stood before a room full of Christian men, say, in their 40s, 30s, 20s, even in their teens. What one singular word of life-giving counsel would you leave with them? I believe that for the vast majority of us, we would not tell, we would not tell these younger Christian men to be self-controlled. In fact, I strongly doubt if such an exhortation would even come into our thinking. But when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus, understand the Holy Spirit divinely, supernaturally breathed into Paul the very wisdom of God for younger Christian men. And that heavenly wisdom strongly appealed to the greatest need younger Christian men have for their sanctification. They need to be self-controlled. Now it should be noted that this grace of self-control is the same grace Paul stresses for the older men and the younger women in Titus chapter 2. But to the younger men... He singles out this grace as the overarching sanctified mark of godliness which should be seen in them as of first importance. But why this grace? Why is it so mandatory for younger Christian men to be particularly self-controlled? J.C. Ryle in his classic book, Thoughts for Young Men, gave at least five reasons why Titus 2 and verse 6 would urge the younger man to be self-controlled, which Ryle observed is five dangers every young man seems to face. First, there is the danger of pride. The danger of pride. Ryle said, like young horses, young men cannot bear the least self-control. They must needs be independent and have their own way. They seem to think like Those whom Job mentioned, we are the people, and wisdom shall die with us. And this, Ryle says, is nothing but pride. Second, there is the danger of loving pleasure. Again, Ryle said of young men in this regard, Youth is the time when our passions are strongest. And like unruly children, cry most loudly for indulgence. Youth is the time when we have generally most health and strength. Death seems far away, and to enjoy ourselves in this life seems everything. Youth is the time when most people have few earthly cares or anxieties to take up their attention. And all these things help to make young men think of nothing so much as pleasure. Third, there's the danger of thoughtlessness and inconsideration. On this point, Ryle observed, young men... None are in more danger of this than yourselves. You know little of the perils around you, and so you are heedless how you walk. You hate the trouble of sober, quiet thinking, and so you form wrong decisions and run your heads into sorrow. This world is not a world in which we can do well without thinking, and least of all do well in the matter of our souls. Consider your way, says the Word of God. Stop and think. Consider and be wise. Fourth, there's the danger of a contempt for the things of God. Ryle lamented over this about young men when he said, I always observe that none pay so little outward respect to the things of God as young men. None attend so badly on the means of grace. None take so little part in worship services. None read the Bible so little or listen to preaching so little as young men. Young men seem to think that they do not need these things. They may be good for women and old men, but not for them. They appear ashamed of seeming to care about their souls before God. Fifth and finally, there is the danger of fearing man's opinion. Fearing man's opinion. J.C. Ryle spoke very soberly to this issue. He said, The thought... What will my family and friends say or think of me nips many a good inclination in the bud. The fear of being observed upon, laughed at, ridiculed, prevents many a good habit being taken up. There are Bibles that would be read this day if the owners dared. They know they, know they should read them, but they are afraid. What will people say? Young men, be of good courage, care not for what the world says or thinks, you will not be with the world always. So, here are the younger men of the church, and based on J.C. Rouse's intuitive observations, these younger men, again the teens, twenties, thirties, and forties, are typically ensnared by at least five sins of the flesh. They are prideful, pleasure-seeking, careless of their ways, thinking little of the means of grace, and prizing more what men will say of them than pleasing. God. Now does this sound fairly accurate? Can you see these sins in younger men? I believe J.C. Ryle was frankly spot on. He was a keen and wise watcher of young men and what what he saw in young men over a hundred years ago hasn't changed in the slightest today. But what we must remember is that Ryle's observations are in response to why the Apostle Paul would instruct the younger men of the church in his day to be self-controlled. So again, due to the pride they place in themselves, their passion for self-indulgence, their thoughtlessness as to the way they live, their lack of faithfulness to the things of God, and their all round fear of man, the infallible Word of God urges the younger men of the church, be self-controlled. Now, at this point, I think it would be very helpful to understand exactly what self-control is as it is used here in Titus 2 and verse 6, combined, of course, with the testimony of other Scripture passages. Since this is to be the premium mark of godliness in the younger men of the church, then we need to take a few moments to make sure that we are clear, absolutely clear, as to what is being called for by divine inspiration. The word itself Paul employs here is a Greek verb which carries the idea of having good judgment and sound thinking and thus exercising self-control. The same word is used, for example, in Mark five fifteen, as describing the healed demoniac clothed in his right mind. In Romans 12 and verse 3, we see the same word used as a matter of exhortation. When Paul says to the church at Rome that they must not think more highly of themselves than they ought, but to think of themselves with sober judgment. So then when Paul urges the younger men to be self-controlled, he is exhorting them essentially to think soberly about themselves. To think soberly about themselves. How they view themselves, their circumstances, and relationships, and responsibilities, and strengths, and weaknesses, and sins. How they perceive their lives as a whole must be with thoughts and perceptions that are clear, honest, sound, and sensible, And to achieve this, their self-perception must be biblical. Now, to tease this out practically, we can say this. Biblical self-control is living within boundaries, thinking before acting, and casting one's complete dependence on Christ and away from self. Let's break this down in the first place. If we're exercising self-control, then we will live within boundaries. We will live within boundaries. Proverbs 25, 28 teaches us like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. To be self-controlled then, we must take practical steps in building walls of protection that will keep us from being overtaken by those things that will tempt us most to sin. For younger men, this would mean guarding their hearts from delusions of self-importance, idolizing pleasure in the praise of men, and being indifferent to the things of God. To such typical snares, a young Christian man must surround his life within the walls of God's Word that will remind him of his own remaining sin, the emptiness of worldly pleasures, the, the danger of prizing man's praise, and the supreme importance and eternal joy Of giving themselves to God. What the Word of God teaches on these matters will strengthen younger Christian men to think soberly and not foolishly, and thus to live within boundaries which will enable them to fight faithfully against their besetting sins. In the second place, to exercise self control, we need to think before we act. We need to think before we act At the heart of self-control is possessing sound judgment, which could be also be understood as having wisdom. Based on God's word, wisdom is living a biblically informed life. It is remembering the fear of the Lord and God's instruction before we proceed. It is thinking before we act. It is considering the consequences of our actions in contrast to giving no thought to the way of life. It is remembering what the Lord hates and choosing to hate those things too. It is learning from the lessons of the past. It is meditating on the good instruction we have received and being suspicious of our ability to justify our own plans and desires. Now for young Christian men, having such wisdom as this is vital to their growth in Christ, not to mention their growth in every area of their life. What I typically see in the younger men of the church, especially those in their late teens and 20s, is a zeal for God that has no self-control. It is not tempered by wisdom, which would lead them to think before they act. Instead, these these young Christian men believe that as long as they have an unbridled passion for God, everything else will take care of itself. So everything they do in the name of Christ is purely acting on impulse, rather than being truly informed by God's word. They live on zeal rather than truth. And the results of this kind of behavior produces young Christian men who are arrogant, despising authority, having no use for the importance and value of the local church and no category for living a holy life. They are thoughtless, careless, reckless in how they treat other Christians. As long as they can plant their flag and be heard, then Who cares? Who cares how it will affect the rest of the church nor what kind of witness it will bring to the world. But what these young Christian men lack is self-control. Specifically the wisdom of self-control to think soberly, to think carefully, to think cautiously before they take the first step to act in what they would claim is for the Lord. In the third and final place, To exercise self-control is to cast one's complete dependence on Christ and away from self. Now this last point about biblical self-control is of colossal importance. We must be very clear. Biblical self-control is not self-reliance or self-dependence or self-improvement or self-focus. When Paul urges the younger men of the church to be self-controlled, he is not calling on them to control themselves by the act of raw willpower. Now self-control is appealed to in God's holy word. Listen, it is a gift of God's grace wrought in the heart of the believer by the Holy Spirit. Hence Galatians 5.23 classifies self-control as what? The fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, while the younger men are entreated to be self-controlled, such an act is carried out only as they rely entirely on Christ to strengthen them, to counter, to resist, to overcome the carnal cravings of remaining sin. But this dependence on Christ is not passive. It's not let go and let God. Far from it as we look to Christ for the power to be self-controlled we are responsible to work this grace out in our lives by wisely cultivating a thoughtful, careful life whereby we obey God in spite of what our flesh is craving. This means to work from Romans chapter 6 12 and 13. This means we do not let sin rule in our bodies nor give our bodily members to sin's disposal to be used for unrighteous purposes. Rather, we continually give ourselves to God, placing our bodies in His service to be used for His pleasure. Moreover, we set our minds on godly thoughts as we would meditate on God's Word, setting a garrison of holiness in our hearts to fight off the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. However, in all these actions which young Christian men are responsible to carry out in order to be self-controlled, yet it is always with the knowledge that one cannot be self-controlled without the grace of God. As Edward Welch once wrote, Scripture never expects us to hear God's commands to us in isolation from the serious contemplation of God's work for us in Christ. Self-control is possible because of the grace given us in Jesus Christ. It is this ever-present grace that teaches us to say no. So how must young Christian men be self-controlled? Live within the boundaries that would be ordered by the Word of God. Think wisely, wisely before taking any action. And above all, always depend solely on Christ and his grace to empower you to live a self-controlled life. This, therefore, is the heart of Paul's appeal in Titus 2 and verse 6. But now that we've considered this general exhortation of the young Christian man, Let's move on in our study to the next group of Christian men whom Paul addresses as we look at the specific exhortation to a young Christian minister. Look at me in verses 7 and 8 of Titus chapter 2. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Having addressed the younger men, Paul now turns his instructions directly on Titus himself, calling and challenging this young pastor to be a model by both his life and teaching to the church as a whole. This word translated model is the the Greek noun which was used originally to denote an impression made by a seal or the stamp made by a die. Employed here in Titus 2.7, in an ethical sense, Paul is imploring this young minister to set his life and doctrine before the church as a pattern worthy for others to follow. This, in fact, was the same counsel Paul gave to Timothy as he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul exhorted Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example... In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. If Timothy did not want the congregation at Ephesus to think little of him as a pastor because he was young, and in this case, in his 30s, then he must model before the church a life worthy to follow. He must set before them an impression and pattern of godliness they can imitate. Also, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3, the apostle Peter strongly urges the elders of the church to not lord over the church in their charge, but lead by being examples, there's the word again, to the flock. Pastors are to lead, not lord, but they lead by living before the church a life worthy to follow in teaching worthy to believe. Hence, in Hebrews 13 and verse 7, the church is commanded to remember your leaders That is speaking specifically of the pastors, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and do what? Imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Beloved, what each of these passages are teaching us about the elders or pastors of the church is that God has given such men to the church not only to teach them the Bible, but to live it before them in such a manner that a godly pattern is set for the church to follow. This is why God requires a standard of character to be met if any Christian man would aspire to be an elder. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, Paul uses the word must, M-U-S-T, must, he uses that term four times to emphasize what should already be present in the man desiring to lead the church as an elder or pastor. He must for. He must, for example, be above reproach. He must manage his own house well. He must not be a new convert. And he must be well thought of by unbelievers in the sense that his life has not brought reproach on the gospel he preaches. The point is, a man who would serve the church as an elder or pastor must be godly in his personal character, his home life, and in his public life. That's the demand. Otherwise, how can he lead the church to follow a godly pattern if he himself is not setting forth such a pattern by his own example? So Paul charges Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a tupos. That's the Greek word for model. Example. An imprint. An Impression. In good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Now breaking this down, a Christian pastor must model a life of good works. Which means that his life is to be a true reflection of what he preaches. For example, if a pastor preaches on the love of Christ in the believer, then the works or actions of that pastor should be the first To show forth the love of Christ to the church as a whole. His life must be consistent with what he teaches. Now, I will say this as an aside. I thank God that the standard is not we should see perfection. You're not going to find that anywhere. It's not that he should be without sin. It's he should be consistent and faithful. Faithful to the calling. Faithful to what the word of God says and commands. You're not looking for a sinless man You're looking for a faithful man. But not only is he to model a life of good works, but his own teaching must be a worthy model to emulate as well. First, his teaching must show integrity. His teaching must show integrity. This word carries the idea of being free from corruption and thus morally pure. In this context, a pastor is to teach nothing false or heretical. He is to teach the pure, unadulterated Word of God holding nothing back, no matter what that may cost him. Second, his teaching must show dignity. His teaching must show dignity. This word refers to that which is serious and grave. On this point, John R. W. Stott observed, people will not take serious subjects seriously unless there is a due seriousness in the preacher's manner and delivery. The pulpit is no place for unwarranted humor and slapstick. There is nothing funny, silly, or trivial about the Word of God. Therefore, the pulpit must never be filled by comedians. Only men of God in dead earnest about the Word of God should teach the church. Finally, His teaching must show sound speech that cannot be condemned. Expounding this last point, consider what one writer wrote. The issue here is not doctrine or theology, but conversation, day-by-day speech. Titus is speaking, whether formal teaching or informal conversation, was to be sound, healthy, edifying, life-giving, appropriate, and beyond reproach. Such virtuous and consistent conversation is surely the mark of a genuinely spiritual man. So then, to the younger men of the church, the Word of God calls them to live a life of self-control. To the pastors of the church, the Word of God challenges them to model a life that is worthy to follow. A life, now listen very closely to this, a life in word and deed that will faithfully point the church always toward Christ In obedience to his commands for the praise of his glory. That's what you should see in any faithful pastor. A life that is pointing the rest of the church not to himself. He's not leaving the church with himself. No, he's leaving the church with Christ. He's pointing them always to Christ, always to the Word of God, always leaving the church. With more of Christ, less of Himself. Churches that center themselves entirely around a personality where the Word of God and His teaching is completely diminished, if not completely absent, that's no longer a church, that's a cult. That is a cult. You only follow the man of God if he is following God. If he is following Christ. Only. Only. Listen, it's no different in a Christian marriage, okay? Wives are to submit to their own husbands, Ephesians 5:22 commands. But listen to the listen to the qualifier Listen to the caveat. As unto the Lord. As unto the Lord. If your husband, obviously I'm speaking now to the wives. If your husband is trying to lead you into sin, you don't go there. You don't submit. You don't follow. You only follow him if he's following Christ. That's it. If he's not following Christ, then you say to him as lovingly as you can, I cannot go with you there. I cannot go with you there. Because obedience to Jesus Christ, that's the priority, that's what's chief, that's above all. That's above all. And the same holds true in the local church. Same holds true. That's why in Hebrews 13, 17, when it says to you, church members, to be obedient and submissive to me as your pastor, there's a limit to that obedience and submission. You mean tell you what the limit is? It's right here. Your obedience and submission to me as your pastor is in obedience and submission to what is being taught to you from the Word of God. You're not obeying and submitting to To the man, you're obeying and submitting what the man is teaching you from the word. That's the limit. That's the clarification. Otherwise, again, (laughs) you got a cult going if you're following strictly the personality. Look at all the non-Christian cults. Look at all of them. They all center around a personality Joseph Smith Jr., Brigham Young Charles Taze Russell Mary Baker Eddie all those personalities all founders of non-Christian cults they never told their followers to go to God, to go to Christ to go to the word, no they wanted their followers to follow strictly them their word, not God's word that's a cult So I clarify that to you, just so you know that you're not part of a cult here at Providence, even though people outside of here think you are. (laughs) Now you have something really to tell them. But in our final major point of study, Paul turns the attention of the entire church, the entire church, to consider the sanctifying effects of a godly life. The sanctifying effects of a godly life. Look with me at the latter half of verse 8. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. These opening words in this last section of Titus 2 8 form a purpose clause for why Paul has set forth such high and holy standards, not only for Titus as a pastor. But for the church as a whole. So if we raise the questions, why is it that the older men and women and the younger men and women are called by God to live lives of godliness and holiness? Why is Titus representing all pastors? Why is he mandated to model a godly life before the church? Why such immense standards and enormous expectations for the church? It is for this purpose, that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. That's why. Now what does that mean? It means simply that when any adversary of Christ in his gospel makes an audacious, unwarranted accusation against a Christian, the clear and undeniable testimony of that believer's life as a life of godliness should be so universally known that the accuser cowers in shame because of his false charges. This is the power and sanctifying effect of a life exhibiting authentic godliness. Teasing out what this means for evangelism, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, The true effectiveness of evangelism does not come from man-made methods, strategy, or marketing techniques adapted from the culture, or from the genuine virtue, moral purity, and godliness of believers whose lives give proof of the truth of God's word and the power of Christ to redeem men from sin. That is what silences the critics and makes the gospel believable. This is why it is not enough, listen, it is not enough to just get the gospel right. That is not enough. No. Let's be very clear about this. While having a sound understanding of the gospel is, of course, hugely important, and the ability to verbally communicate it can never be underestimated nor diminished. Yet, yet, if our lives do not consistently reflect the truth of God's saving power, then all of our gospel soundness is good for nothing. Remember, Matthew chapter 5, 13 through 16, Jesus says of his people, You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's who you are, church. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. As salt and light, our lives should not only oppose sin and manifest the righteousness of the gospel by our words, but also by our deeds, by how we live. But when our words and deeds do come together in harmony and conformity to the gospel then we're told here in Titus 2 and verse 8, then our opponent will be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, very important clarification here. These words in Titus 2 and verse 8, they are not a promise that we will never be persecuted if we're living godly lives. Do not misinterpret this text for that. On the contrary... God promises us in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, that all his people will suffer persecution if what? If we live godly lives. Okay? If we live godly lives, the word of God says in 2 Timothy 3, 12, you will suffer persecution. You will suffer persecution. However, the point of Titus 2, 8 is that if we are living godly lives, then those who oppose the gospel will have no legitimate criticisms to charge against us. Instead, they will end up being ashamed for their opposition to the truth because the manner of our living clearly exhibited the truth which they oppose. That's the point of Titus 2 and verse 8. So in closing our study... Titus 2, verses 6 through 8, not to mention verses 1 and 2 from last week in Titus chapter 2. Let me raise some pertinent searching questions. And here is the chief of all questions. What kind of model or pattern are we leaving others to follow? You see, it's not just the pastor who's in the hot seat here. You're all in the hot seat. What kind of Model or pattern are we leaving others to follow? To the younger Christian men, are you self-controlled? Are you self-controlled? Are you you a sober-minded man? Do you live within boundaries? Do you think before you act? Can you remember a time? Here's a question. Can you remember a time when you actually said no... sinful desires and carried out that resistance with faithful obedience to Christ and are you looking to Christ always for the strength to enable you to be self-controlled is that true of you moreover are your priorities in the order that glorifies God and makes much of him in your life teasing this out in practical matters are you breaking off any connection with every known sin in your life no matter how small no matter how small are you fleeing from every potential occasion to sin? What did Jesus teach us in Matthew chapter 5 about this? He said, Gouge out your right eye, cut off your right hand. Obviously, metaphorical language. What was the point of the metaphor? You were to cut off and cut out every potential occasion to sin. Anything in your life that would, that would, that would, give you an occasion to sin cut it out cut it off get rid of it that's the point of our lord furthermore do you live with a do you live with a conscious awareness that god's eye is ever upon you you are never out of his presence do you realize that you're never out of his presence nor absent from his perfect knowledge of all that you are and do. No human being can see everything you think and say and do in your life. No human being can see it all in your life. No one has that kind of sight, which is omniscient sight, all-knowing. But God does. God does. So, whatever others may not see or know about me, God knows it all. God knows everything. Everything I'm thinking, even before I think it. Everything I say. Everything I feel. Every motive I have. Everything I do. We are always under the all-knowing watch of God. His watchful, perfect eye, if you will, is always on us. Never a moment that it's not. Never a moment that it's not. What about the public means of grace? Are you faithful every Lord's Day to be in God's house worshiping with fellow believers, barring, of course, sickness or death? But are you faithful every week? And do you determine every week to keep the Lord's Day a holy day, not profaning it It's common, a day given to God in his worship rather than spent on your own pleasures, to quote from Isaiah 53, excuse me, 58 verses 13 and 14. And To build on this question, to build on this question, do you simply stand out from the culture around you that seeks to make young men into arrogant, pleasure-seeking, success-driven hedonists? Is your heart rather set on Christ and what pleases him? Is that your chief ambition, your chief ambition? Finally, on a much larger scale of application, are we as the church of Jesus Christ, are we silencing our worst critics who believe that the church is full of nothing but hypocrites? From the leadership to the laity, from the leadership to the laity, are we in our daily lives, in our daily conversation, speaking loudly and clearly to the truth and power of God's saving grace. Do our lives prove to others in little and large ways that Jesus Christ is our treasure? Beloved, this is the greater and bigger message of Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. As the church being made up of Older men and women, younger men and women, men who serve the church as elders, pastors, are we together, together are we by God's grace and through His Spirit striving to make a lasting impact for godliness on the culture wherein God's divine providence has planted us to bloom for His glory. May we give ourselves, all of us, To that holy end. And may we do so, not for our sakes, but for the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. In the heart of every Christian, there should be this constant prayer Lord, let my life leave the people around me with more of you. And less of me. More of you. And less of me. That should be a constant petition. May we pray to that end. Let's pray. Our Holy Father. If indeed there was anything Lord. That we have taken away from this sobering. In somber passage in Titus 2, it is that no matter who we are as your people, as fellow Christians, how we live our lives matters. And it matters, Lord, as we have been taught this morning to everyone around us. We recognize, Father, that our lives make an impression. They make an imprint. They leave an example. Our prayer and our plea before you is that by the sanctifying work and power of the indwelling Spirit, may our lives leave more of a godly example, of a godly model that will point every single person in our circle of influence more to Christ, more to our great Lord and God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and leave them less and less, Lord, we pray, with ourselves. We want to leave them more with you with your words and not our opinions. With the truth and not falsehood. With the power of the saving gospel. And Lord, because we know that this is your will for us, clearly, by the teaching of your word, we thank you for the grace you've given us in Christ to live in such a way, to leave such a pattern of holiness and godliness in our wake. And by faith, blessed Father, we act upon this grace that we have in Christ. And may we, may we do so with greater fervency beginning even now for the sake and the honor and the glory and praise and the honor of your eternal Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen and amen.